If you're looking to buy or sell pre-IPO stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. Since 2009, SharesPost has transacted more than $4 billion in the top private tech companies. Proven, trustworthy, secure. Visit us at SharesPost.com. Hi, and welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Silicon Valley editor, Connie Loises. This week, I'm joined by TechCrunch's own Danny Crichton. Hi. And Crunchbase News is Alex Wilhelm. Hello. And our guest this week is Iris Choi, a partner at Floodgate. Iris, thank you so much for joining us. I'm thrilled to be here. I, I feel like I couldn't have uh, picked a busier day or news week to be part of this. <laughs> no kidding. Before we begin, as we started recording this podcast, we just learned that the SEC has sued Tesla CEO Elon Musk for securities fraud over his tweet about taking Tesla private. Details are early, but certainly this is the biggest story in the tech, if not the U.S. business world. Holy smokes, guys, what happened while I was en route to the office just now? I think it's a good point that you shouldn't make uh, pot jokes about stock prices and then lie about having funding <laughs> secured to take your large company private when it's not true. I don't know if that's an overstatement of the fact, but I, I think I think securities fraud is not a great idea, generally speaking. I, I you know, so we just I just a couple of weeks ago interviewed the um, head of the SEC's sort of West Coast Bureau, Gina Choi, and she was talking about how. Uh, you know, how involved the process is before they bring charges against someone. I mean, in the case of Theranos, for example, it took them almost two years. So I'm really stunned that this happened so quickly. There must have been quite a lot there for them to pour over. I don't really know how else to explain it. It's all on Twitter, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, I think it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, having worked in investment banking, we kind of all feared the SEC. And so that was part of my career before I came to Floodgate. And I think that what's especially challenging in this case is um, Elon Musk cannot hide behind, you know, I'm a private company CEO of a startup. Obviously, he's an executive and a CEO and a board member of multiple publicly traded companies. And so so it feels a little bit like the SEC might tr- be trying to make a real example of this case, especially because from what I've read, and granted it's you know early in the breaking news cycle, they are the fine that they are looking to impose is rather severe, which is to no longer allow him to operate as an executive or a board member of a publicly traded company. Wow. I mean, considering... So what is his role? So he's the chairman and the CEO of Tesla. That's right. He is the, the, the chairman of uh, SpaceX, SpaceX and the CEO of SpaceX? I believe so. Wow. Um, I mean, like, Those wow. Those are busy days. <laughs> well, but interestingly, SpaceX is, is private, right? So it's not fully Oh, oh yes. I'm sorry. So presumably... Uh, right, right, but presumably it wasn't so actually, long ago. He was also with SolarCity. Yeah. Right. He's exactly. Also right. Well, the, the market reaction has been really tough. I mean, I'm looking at a, an after hours stock chart right now and Tesla shares are down 12%. That's a lot. It's almost shocking that they're not down further. I wonder if people are still catching wind of this uh, announcement well, as I am. Yeah, I'm trying I to mean, sort of process well, what it means for the company. I mean, you know, we've talked about this before. It's impossible to imagine Tesla without Elon Musk. I yeah. mean, it's a beautiful car, but so much of the, the company's sort of appeal has to, you know, do with him specifically. Okay, so we still have a lot, of, a lot to process here on the Musk story. No doubt we'll be talking about this at greater length next week. In the meantime, another huge story this week is SoftBank's Vision Fund and its continued spending spree. Danny, you want to tell us what happened in today especially? No, absolutely. I mean, talking about ambitious entrepreneurs and major moguls in the tech space, um, Amaza's son, uh, who runs SoftBank and, and the Vision Fund, uh, we learned this week that he actually intends to put out $50 billion in venture capital every year. 
uh, and it's going to raise additional $100 billion vision funds uh, throughout the future. And so uh, this was like the week for for SoftBank. I mean, I think we're, we have, what, uh, three multi-hundred million dollar deals from SoftBank. Um, just today alone, across the venture world, we had $1.6 billion in venture deals announced according to Dan Premack. And so, so much news to cover, but I think we're going to start with with Oyo, an Indian uh, uh, hospitality company, Alex. Yeah, <clears throat> this was the um, the first one to come out this week. We'll get to what happened this morning, which is maybe even crazier. But I have to confess, I hadn't even heard of Oyo, which is spelled O-Y-O, all caps. It's a company out of India. Uh, I think it's actually founded by a Teal Fellow, of all things. And they kind of focus on budget-ish but high-quality um, hotel rooms, which are apparently something that we don't have everywhere. So the company has raised a, a billion dollars more, which is – I think we're kind of inured to how much money that is. But um, SoftBank also took part in a number of its other funding rounds to date. So this is not their first kind of bet on the company. It must be doing, doing quite well. And uh, according to TechCrunch's John Russell, it kind of aggregates budget hotels and hostels across India and then ensures that they include kind of like – Wi-Fi and hot showers and things that kind of people expect. So it's, it's a cool play. But the reason why it caught my eye wasn't just the dollar amount. It was the fact that it doesn't seem to be kind of tech. It seems to be kind of a hospitality play. And so I was kind of curious if we were surprised that uh, the Vision Fund would deploy so much capital into this company kind of in one go here uh, later on. Well, I don't think the SoftBank Vision Fund has ever sort of limited itself purely to tech. Obviously, it has a lot of major tech investments. But if you look at some of their other... Um, in investments in companies like WAG, uh, the dog walking marketplace, or Katera, the construction marketplace, you know these are tech enabled. Um, they're using technology. Uh, in Katera's case, they're using some artificial intelligence to improve the supply chain around modular um, housing. But uh, I don't think it's ever been limited that way. And, and when you want to deploy a hundred billion, it's exactly spaces like real estate that are going to be able to accept that kind of capital. I, so I actually had a chance to um, interview one of the managing directors a couple of nights ago uh, in, a, in a, an event I hosted in the city, and he was talking about SoftBank's uh, sort of you know long term and growing interest in real estate uh, investments. And he was pointing out that it's a you know 1.8 trillion dollar industry. It represents 23 percent of global GDP, um, and you know. Uh, technology can obviously uh, dramatically change the the cost profile, he said, the quality, the timeline to build. Um, and so they're just pouring a ton of their capital into um, a lot of these sort of businesses that are not sort of asset heavy. Uh, as you mentioned, Danny, it's sort of, uh, you know, places where software can make uh, the, the business more efficient. So two other investments that it made just today. Um, in a, so Oyo, I believe, was yesterday. Today, it invested in Compass, uh, a real estate platform, and it, it was what four hundred million dollars into Compass, yeah. and it just yeah. led another uh, investment in Compass. I think like less than a year ago, led a four hundred twenty-five million dollar round into this company, and its valuation now is four point four billion. It also announced a four hundred million dollar investment in Open Door, which is a San Francisco-based company that is trying to make it possible to sort of buy and sell houses with a few clicks. Uh, and this company has also raised a ton of money, roughly, uh, well, a little bit over a billion in the last year. Um, most of it has come, I should say, in the last year, and it's now valued at more than $2 billion. So yeah, SoftBank is uh, you know pedal to the metal in terms of real estate investing. 
It's clear that they know also where their capital makes a difference, right? Meaning that if you look at the business model of a company like Open Door, I think before this most recent investment by SoftBank, they did have a deadline. But I feel like if anyone were to sling arrows at them, they would say it's incredibly capital intensive, right? And so there's not actually that many other funders that would be able to give them as long of a trajectory to grow as a SoftBank. So I think it's interesting that they've decided to double down on the real estate sector. To the earlier conversation about Oyo, I think one of the things I've discovered, it's very hard to understand from outside of the four walls of the VC that leads an investment, what their thesis Mm. is. And it actually, in my mind, piques my interest into what will be more tech enabled about that business going forward. I think it's an interesting business model. In my mind, in the most simplistic sense, it's basically giving all of these independent, like mom and pop run hotels, the benefits as if you were part of a franchise, right? They're kind of um, putting them on equal footing in terms of Wi-Fi, certain level of service. I believe they take on the Oyo brand. And then you also join the same platform so that booking becomes fairly seamless. But I suspect there's going to be more that we'll see happen um, across the platform over the next couple of years once SoftBank is in there. Yeah, no doubt you're right. Um, But the whole SoftBank itself is really interesting. And I'm going to be posting a story on this shortly. Um, But it kind of pulled back the curtain a little bit for me um, on uh, Tuesday night. And uh, Bloomberg also wrote a story today about what's happening inside the firm, which, Danny, I think you referenced when you talked about its plans to raise, you know, $100 billion funds every few years. Uh, it's now run by 86 people. It's got nine managing directors. The minimum check size is $100 million, which is pretty mind-blowing. <laughs> um, so funny still. Okay, I'll shut up. And I'm sorry, know, 50, you know, 50, 50 million is too small. exactly it is too small and the point at which they have to actually talk to their lps about an investment and just sort of get their blessing is when they want to write a check of over five billion dollars five billion which apparently is only oh my god which has only happened i think a few (laughs) times so it's its biggest investments to date are uber Mm -hmm. uh WeWork, and didi in china but uh, yeah, I guess if there's um, that much more capital to come, we can expect them to you know, continue disrupting the, the, the venture scene. I mean, I talked to Jeff, uh, the managing um, director um, on Tuesday about just, you know, I sort of basically ran past him all the various criticisms that VCs sort of have privately about SoftBank, uh, you know, disrupting and potentially ruining uh, the venture scene. And he insisted that, you know, the VCs love him <laughs> and they love SoftBank because it keeps marking up their deals. And so, you know. We'll see what happens. It's still sort of TBD. Iris, do you think the SoftBank is a, a net positive or a net negative for the venture capital scene in America? The venture fund, the vision fund. That you know, is. yeah, I think it's. Um it's all a matter of perspective, not surprisingly. And for us, we're so early in the seed process. The question that we often get asked is, do you fear that you will invest in a company and then five years later, SoftBank will come in and fund their competitor, right? And um, in some ways, you could argue we've experienced that in that we were the seed investors in Lyft. And obviously, Uber was able to raise much more capital in a faster amount of time. But we're still very bullish on Lyft and thrilled to have been believers probably before most other people believed. Um, I think that the part that we really emphasize, especially when we get this question from founders, is that as your partners, we think it's really important to help you understand your own fundraising roadmap. Um, And what I mean by that is we don't ever want our founders to get caught in the cycle where their fundraising 
because they ran out of money or just because they're reacting to a term sheet that came in over the transom. And so we want them to be really thoughtful about what their capital needs are for the stage they're at and what milestones they think that they'll be able to achieve with that money so that coming out of that kind of capital spend, they'll be really well positioned for their next stage of growth. Sometimes what that may mean is for some of our companies, SoftBank or someone with pockets as deep as SoftBanks could be an incredible partner, especially if a company is looking to blitzscale maybe earlier in their trajectory than a lot of companies where it's hard to go the traditional VC route of, okay, C now to A to B to C, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I suspect SoftBank, because they're a little bit newer kid on the block, may be more flexible. I have also heard, Connie, that minimum check size of $100 But I'm curious to see over the next couple of years what kind of data they're looking for before they're willing to deploy that kind of check size. Uh, yeah, I'm interested in knowing what kind of data they're looking for now. I mean, of course, they have a lot of metrics probably mm-hmm. at their disposal because they're usually going into later stage companies yeah. that have, you know, well, num- numbers to think, show you them. Know, Compass is a great example. So I, I, we heard today that, you know, sales in 2018 are, are slated to be $34 billion. So this is real estate. Um, and then they're on track to have revenues of $1 billion. Um, so, the, I mean, these are not cheap companies. These are not $10 million SaaS right. businesses. Um, it's interesting to see this in year six or seven. It was founded in 2012 for Compass. But, you know, this is a six-year-old company at a billion in revenue. Uh, not a bad place no, to No, no. But here's a question that I had. So this morning when I woke up, I'm on the East Coast uh, this week, and I, I thought I had just fallen back asleep because I thought I'd read the same story twice because um, there were two $400 million rounds with SoftBank participation that were both in the real <laughs> right. estate buying and selling space. And I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I was always told that in the venture world or in the private investing world more broadly, you don't back two horses in the same race. That if you have exposure to one kind of play, like, I don't know, like, you know, cloud storage back in 2012, you wouldn't invest in two of them because that would be ridiculous. Um, here we have sopping money going into Compass and Open Door, and they both deal with domestic buying and selling of homes. So I, I stamped about this a little bit. And I had some kind of negative feedback about my views, but to me, it seems like a bit of an abrogation of of that rule. And so I'm, I'm curious if we think that they're kind of placing two bets in the same uh, same direction here. I don't really, I don't know, Iris, if you I, know the dis- distinctions between the two companies, but I, I mean, this is obviously not new to SoftBank. They've made lots of bets that are sort of, you know, you, you could see the companies competing each other with each other as they grow into sort of bigger global players, all these rideshare companies, for example. Yeah. Um, on one hand, I think, uh, you know, it's sort of, it, it's in its mind, uh, it's, you know, sort of, it just wants to make sure that it's behind the winners no, no matter what. Uh, I also think it probably sees ways to sort of create synergies between its portfolio companies in ways that, um, you know, VCs maybe traditionally have not tried to do uh, in the same way. Well, and I, think I feel that's... like I've heard SoftBank say something along the lines of these are markets where they don't think it's necessarily one winner takes all. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of distinctions between the two companies, you know, um, I don't know that I could be quoted on this, but my understanding is Compass is more around the software aspect of it versus Open Door is actually mm-hmm. buying and mm-hmm. holding the real estate and then flipping it. Right. Um, now, I don't think it's so much of a stretch to imagine that those two would collide at some mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that I suspect SoftBank feels like there's enough room. But I also agree, you know, this concept of 
placing multiple bets in one industry is something you are much more likely to see in the past with smaller funds that, for lack of a better phrasing, use the spray and pray approach, right? Where they just saw that there was a movement in a certain sector. And so they wanted to be a part of that movement, but didn't know or didn't have enough data to pick the lead horse and said, you know, I'm going to make multiple bets. And then maybe we double down later. Right. Either way, what I think is sort of most interesting about SoftBank is, you know, the average time to um, for a company to go public already before SoftBank hit the scene was like 30 13 years. Mm-hmm. So if it's extending the, the lifeline of these companies even longer, right. it's just sort of, you know, I mean, I think that the concern is not not enough people are getting liquidity, then their LPs stop funding the asset class. And that's what sort of ends up uh, killing it in the end. I, I don't know. I mean, of course, that's like the most dramatic, uh, alarmist <laughs> viewpoint you could possibly take. I mean, but, it's, it's equity, uh, Connie. Why not be alarmist? I mean, that's what the whole that's that's kind of <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever heard the show. Like we're on it. <laughs> but on that point, you know, there is the question of how many, how much of these large checks is actually for primary shares versus secondary, right? And I think that's the component that sometimes is a little bit unclear. Right. Maybe it's just the late stage players. Right. And obviously, business. in the Uber example, there was right. a tender offering. So mm-hmm. at least for the venture capitalists, some of them got out. And obviously, that doesn't necessarily always um, carry through to the employees. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the points that you're raising are still very valid and I suspect top of mind for some of these employees. But there are. Uh, you know, shifts sort of, I feel like venture capital firms are kind of evolving to live with SoftBank. So mm-hmm. most interestingly, a, a company that we are, firm that we talk about pretty commonly uh, here on equity is Sequoia Capital, which just closed an $8 billion fund. Mm-hmm. And it's got, you know, a couple of other several, or, you know, billion dollar plus funds uh, that have, are there. I think they've all closed actually. In any case, uh, the, it's sort of, I think, raised this an enormous amount of money in order to um, be there for its companies as they age. So they want to be there at the seed, A, B, C, D. Um, and when SoftBank comes knocking, you know, at the series E or F, it wants to say, well, guys, you can go with these, you know, Soft, or, you know SoftBank or you can stick with us because now we can take care of you. I think Doug Leone at uh, our recent TechCrunch Disrupt event called it friendly capital <laughs> as opposed to That's, otherwise. Ugh, I don't know. I, I just, I wonder how this is all going to work out when the market drops by 20%, which it eventually will. And I wonder if this conversation is going to look kind of silly in retrospect because, you know, maybe all of a sudden if things go wrong, SoftBank's biggest check will be $100 million at its minimum. I don't know if they can raise another $100 billion in a couple of years to deploy $50 billion yearly if uh, the magic goes away from the current flow of capital around the world. Well, it's it's a good question. It's it's it will be interesting to see exactly how quickly he closes the fund, Masayoshi Son, the CEO. Also, it'll be interesting if he closes the fund and the market does shift dramatically. If uh, LPs, you know, one of them being the, the biggest being Saudi Arabia and um, what Crown Prince uh, uh, Mohammed uh, oh, well, bin MBS, Salam yeah. or something. Uh, it, yeah, MBS. Um, if they call back the capital, mm-hmm. you know, we've seen that in uh, previous down markets where LPs have said, hey, you know what? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, like I think that, is, that would be interesting, mm-hmm. right? Because when we've seen it in the past, it's usually been with endowments or sure. offices that are very sensitive right. to their asset allocation strategy. And to be frank, I'm not really sure how the sovereign wealth funds think about it. I don't that. know, but if MBS calls you, you take it. You take <laughs> that call. Well, back. I mean, he better hurry up. I mean, if they, they've invested so much of it. If he's going to pull back, I think Saudi Arabia put in 45 billion of the of the hundred, right? So yeah, exactly. so exactly. Yeah, famously in a 45-minute pinch. Well, it's a billion dollars per minute when you talk to Masayoshi. That's why all these calls are so short. Um, <laughs> right. But if they want to pull it back, <laughs> totally that much <laughs> everyone, don't forget, this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. Uh, should we scoot along to the uh, the IPOs of this week? Talking yes, about yeah, liquidity. Know, right. All right. So I'm going to talk about SurveyMonkey because I loved this IPO because I don't understand it and I want to get everyone's uh, notes. So super quickly, if you've been under a rock, 
SurveyMonkey went public this week, uh, had a really great first day, closed, I think, up 42%. So the internet was very happy about that little inside joke. Uh, but here's what matters. So they they ended up going public a uh, dollar per share above range. They're shooting for 9 to $11, got 12, which is always a good sign. And they also increased the size of their IPO from 13.5 million to 15 million shares. So a very, very solid uh, IPO pricing process, followed by a first day pop that was just beautiful. Um, Got to feel good about that internally to that company. But I, I just, looking at this company that was founded back in 99, if my notes are correct, it only grew a little less than 14% from the first half of last year to the first half of this year, which isn't that much. And it did so uh, while losing more money. And um, you know, people often buy into tech IPOs looking for growth. And here, in this case, uh, there wasn't that much to be found, but the market reaction was still, I don't, I, I don't incalculably optimistic about it. So I'm kind of curious if we had any notes or thoughts on uh, why this relatively venerable company um, did so well. I mean, Connie, were you shocked by it? You know, I, I sorry to say I wasn't following it as closely as I should have been. I was surprised. I mean, I didn't think it was going to. I didn't think it looked like a terribly strong IPO. I think it sort of speaks to just hunger there is in the public market for you know, companies to tech companies to go public. I mean, so much is happening in the private market that's not available to public shareholders these days, which is, you know, another problem that SoftBank seems, you know, poised to sort of exacerbate. Um, so I guess uh, from that perspective, I'm not shocked. One sort of interesting note, I'm looking at uh, the New York Post right now. And of course, this is a very New York Post type story. But um, one of the company's most recent board members is um, tennis uh, star Serena Williams. And apparently she just made... Uh, $857,000 um, from her shares in the company. So uh, not that she needed it. <laughs> but, get, uh, <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a very post story. Okay. <laughs> that's not- uh, Danny, I don't know. Did you have any thoughts on the, the SurveyMonkey IPO? Look, I think, I think we underestimate the power of roadshows. Uh, I think they, they sort of sold an ambitious vision, both in the S1, but uh, clearly they went to a lot of the wealth managers and institutionals, um, possibly around the world. And um, clearly, as the performance of the IPO shows, there's a lot of interest in buying into that vision. Um, you know, the company didn't grow all that much. Um, the losses did grow quite substantially in the last year, but um, they do have a kind of a roadmap. And uh, clearly, a lot of investors think they're going yeah, the right Yeah, but direction. I mean, I think if I recall, they had some debt they were going to take care of. And, you know, it just, it just struck me as a bit of, it, it shows to me how exuberant the public market is for new tech shares. And that to me is uh, worrisome because we've had some IPOs this year that have been lesser. Domo, Neo, you know, there's been a couple that have been kind of dicey. Um, so I, I'm, I wonder if there's mm-hmm. too much uh, exuberance. And I know that I'm always the, the voice of negativity and sadness on the show, but uh, I, I was I was actually, <laughs> well, I mean, it's my per- You already talked about the economic collapse <laughs> oh. of the vision fund. So. I, I, I cut <laughs> smiles and windows. No, but... I thought it was going to be fine. Like if you if you had made me write down numbers, I would have said you know it's going to price roughly at eleven and go up about twenty percent day one. But it was twelve and forty two, and I can't quite square the numbers of the company and that. So if, if Danny's right, if this is a, a solid roadshow and selling vision, good for them because that's what you want to do with that sort of activity. But um, it, it's still as an economic conservative, uh, I don't know. I, I found it silly. It's not as bad as what happened to Bitmain, but you know, not everything can be that silly. 
But on SurveyMonkey, you know, I also noticed that I, I want to say 2016 to 2017, their revenue growth rate was only about 6%, which is surprising, right, for a tech company that's so well known that's going for an IPO. Mm-hmm. But I suspect what happened on the roadshow is also they really emphasize their free cash flow, right? I think that's what the CEO spent quite a bit of time talking about and that they have a path to even gap profitability. Um, and I will say I was a little surprised by the receptivity of the market because these days, at least in the private uh, markets, everybody is prioritizing revenue growth. Right. Um, and so it may I am curious to see if their investor base maybe looks a little bit different than some of the other investor bases that have poured into like a Dropbox and some of the other IPOs. Yeah, this and year. I, I can underscore that that point. So I pulled up its, uh, its S1A and in the first half of 2018, it had a positive operating cash flow of 22 mil. And uh, when you throw in investing cash flow and financing, it was still plus 8.2 million. And that's uh, it was also positive in the first mm-hmm. uh, six months of 2017 and had positive overall cash movements in all of 2017 as well. So it seems to have turned the corner on a cash basis in the last 18 months, which is always good before you go public. But I mean, I, it, the, the growth question you know, is the thing that everyone talks about when they're raising a new round and usually when they're going public. So I, I didn't think that cash flow was going to be able to mitigate uh, that kind of sore spot. But again, this is why I'm a talker and uh, not an investor. <laughs> but uh, but I want to move on to Bitmain because this has been the set of numbers that I've been looking forward to for months and months and months. And uh, well, I don't know. I'm not going to get ahead of myself. Danny, talk us through uh, the figures. Absolutely. So, uh, I mean, this has to be one of the most interesting IPOs. So Bitmain is one of the largest um, designers uh, of Bitcoin chips. They're a fabulous uh, manufacturer based in China. Um, And in the last couple of years has really been at the center of a lot of the Bitcoin and and broader cryptocurrency um, success and and sort of controversies. Uh, But it's the numbers that are crazy. So um, a couple of the uh, key ones are the company made 2.5 billion uh, in revenue last year. And then they made that almost that much, 2.8 billion in just the first six months of this year. Um, Almost all of their uh, revenues come from their Antminer chipsets, which are now 94% of all their revenues. But what's nuts is that revenue is paid for in cryptocurrency. So 27% of the company's revenue is paid for in cryptocurrency. And because of the crash, and exactly, well, because of the crash... (laughs) Because of the crash Alex, and the crypto really prices. I, I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you pay me in you know, tokens you find at the bottom of a Cracker Jack box, I'm not going to call it revenue. I'm just <laughs> – I like things I can buy sodas with from vending machines. Call me old-fashioned. Danny, keep going. Sorry for interrupting. Well, it, it was, it was, well, certainly, uh, you know, accepting all that currency, they actually keep it on the books. So they actually have a large segment, almost a billion – I think it's something like a billion dollars in cryptocurrency on the accounting books. Um, they lost $103 million this year from those holdings because of the crashes um, in, in the blockchain space. But what's nuts is um, the company's profitable as of last year, uh, $701 million in profit, um, up from $104 million in profit in 2016. Now, what, what gets interesting here and really controversial is um, we had learned earlier uh, at TechCrunch and also um, some other kind of leaks uh, to the press that the, the firm had a really strong first quarter. Um, yet, uh, if you look at the, the full first half of 2018 and compare to those, to the leak figures from Q1, um, clearly Q2 has not gone well, uh, in sort of this, uh, post crypto craze world, um, profits, if you believe kind of the math, uh, well, we're probably lost a couple yeah, hundred million bucks last million. quarter, um, going straight into the IPO, going into the IPO. So this is a company that, you know, made 700 million last year was on a course to make several billion in profit potentially this year and actually ended up with a 400 million loss last quarter and now is trying to IPO. So uh, I have no idea what's going to happen here. 
Um, the last piece here, uh, the co-founders of the company, uh, Ketuan John and Tihan Wu, uh, own 36 and 20% of the company respectively. So the two of them own 56% um, raw. Uh, of the shareholders, and uh, and that's a pretty amazing stat uh, in a world in which companies are raising you know multi hundred million dollar yeah, rounds. Yeah, and then just kind of one more note: the the group Bitmex did a great IPO teardown, kind of doing some subtraction to figure out the Q two numbers. And uh, according to their analysis, they had to uh, depend on new investment to retain a positive cash position in the last quarter. And you know, if you're going public, you don't want to be that volatile. You know, you want to be able to show you can that you're stable and you're going to keep growing and things are okay. So I would call this Q2 kind of a train wreck um, for a company that was relatively hyped as the savior of crypto space and proof that it was going to be a profitable investment category. So I, I, I'm a bit negative. Well, I, I yeah, go back I'd to it. Iris. Yeah, I would be curious to see uh, what their messaging is on their roadshow, right? Because um, given that their revenues are primarily generated by semiconductor chips um, for mining technology, we already have publicly traded companies like NVIDIA or Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corp that have warned the street that that component of their revenue is actually going to be going down in the future. And so to our earlier discussion around wanting to be able to show really high revenue uh, revenue growth rates going forward, it's a big question mark in my mind. But I mean, they have to. I mean, like you can't you can't be a, a shrinking company and go public. I've never seen that work. And also, again, That's according right. to this BitMEX analysis, they were actually gross margin negative in Q2. Also, just one of those awful things that only Snapchat oh, has great. done uh, that close to its IPO and pulled off a successful offering. So I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think this works. I don't think this goes out, or at least not nearly the valuations that were being tossed about. I mean, we were talking about valuations in the tens of billions. People were referring to a PE ratio of 20. Well, you don't have a PE ratio if you lose money, and that's kind of back to where they are. Um, I, I don't know. Well, and I think I, I think as as Iris pointed out earlier, you, when you want to fundraise, you want to be in a position of power, right? You want to be in a position where your numbers allow you to sort of say, "I want to take this or not take this," and I have an opinion on it. And I think what happened here is the numbers were really great. They sort of prepped for the IPO; it's been rumored for the last year, uh, and then all the timing just completely got messed up. And this is part of my frustration in general with uh, U.S. tech companies. You know, we have one of the best IPO windows we've ever seen. And right now we have a 1999 <laughs> company coming with SurveyMonkey. Um, Upwork has a legacy going back to 97. is going to price next week. So we'll probably talk it on equity. Um, you know, when these windows open and the timing is right, you have to go. Uh, you just never yeah. know what's going to change. Well, let's talk about Jewel because this is our, our new Uber on the show, I believe. This is what we talk about uh Talk about each because nothing makes me happier than talking about teens vaping in the bathroom. So, Connie, what's going on? <laughs> oh, so, excuse me. I was mentioning this event that I hosted earlier this week, and uh, the Jewel founders actually had also appeared, um, and we had a very long discussion about the company, um, partly because earlier in the week, the FDA uh, had appeared at an Axios event, or I should say um, the FDA had uh, Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, and he said that the FDA, which <clears throat> has been sort of concerned about uh, e-vaping and sort of Jewel specifically, given that it's got a now 75% of the e-vaping market uh, in the um, U.S., uh, said they are considering um, banning flavors uh, and they are also considering banning the uh, sale of online tobacco products and e-cigarettes um, specifically. So that would really um, hamper the company. I mean, to be honest, uh, you know, based on our conversation it's such a big opportunity that it's facing that I think even if it were to get rid of the flavored, um, 
e-cigarette liquids, it would be fine. But um, I sort of asked them why they don't just drop it and sort of move on. And I had said uh, that there seemed to be sort of an ocean of evidence suggesting that flavors attract underage people to their product um, versus, uh, you know, adults gravitating toward Juul because of those flavors. And they sort of said, no, no. Uh, They cited internal research that shows that it's one of the top reasons that um, their ideal prospects who are adult smokers start using Juul and stick with the product. They'd said, uh, you know, they, these, uh, you know, adult smokers really want a product that's sort of as far from uh, traditional smoking as possible, including the flavor. I can don't know I, if I buy that entirely, but um, they did say they're turning all this. I, I'm sorry. Because I think I'm the only active sure, Juul sure, user absolutely. on the show unless Iris is, uh, you know, Juuling currently on the show. Yeah, <laughs> no, so, sorry, uh, so I I, I'm with you, Connie. I would have guessed that uh, that adults wouldn't <laughs> like to buy cool cucumber, mint, uh, sorry, Juul pods. Um, but it turns out I'm wrong. <laughs> and I'm one of the I'm weird really... people who smokes like the, the okay. little tobacco flavored ones because that's, I, I don't know, it's better. But but everyone else that I know who's who jewels, who is of legal age, uh, does one of the flavored pots. So mm-hmm. I, I would have guessed that the other way too. But I just anecdotally, I can back that up. I don't know if it's morally okay, but at least I don't, yeah, not I have lying. no idea. No, no. I mean, and they said you know there is evidence they're turning it over to the FDA. They're in the process of turning over, I guess, a bunch of uh, data to the FDA, which sort of wanted them to prove within the next sixty days, which I guess now is like fifty days from now, that um, they can control uh, sales to um, underage users, um, partly to, you know, by making sure that they're not accessing, um, the product in bulk online. I think that's been a concern in the past that, you know, somebody buys a bunch of it and then the kids buy it from that person. Um, so we'll see what happens, but it's a really interesting company. And the, and, and I was just saying it has such a huge market opportunity one way or the other. I mean, as they were pointing out, 95% of the billion billion, uh, smokers in the world live outside of the U.S. where, you know, regulations are different or non-existent. Um, so I think this company is going places one way or another and whether or not people well, want to see it happen. it's very profitable. So you're not going to be able to get rid of it. I mean, you can't kill it. I guess the FDA could shut it down in the U.S., but it can just go work everywhere else. In your interview, you pointed out the Israel question. Well, I- and they said, actually, no, it's not banned yes. in Israel. Only the 5% solution is banned in Israel. So they changed that. I mean, that was a big news story for like 38 exactly. seconds. I also talked to them about uh, tobacco companies, and it sounded like, you know, uh, under the right circumstances, they might be open to um, an acquisition offer. I, I should probably quote them exactly so I, I don't sort of misrepresent what they said, but it wasn't like a an absolutely not. Um, one thing they did say that I was I thought was interesting was, um, you know, so they, they confirmed that they raised $1.2 billion this summer from Tiger um, and Fidelity, and I'm not sure who else. Um they confirmed that it's uh, at a $15 billion rate valuation, but they also said, um, uh, James Monsey's uh, the co-founder, and I believe he's the chief product officer, said, you know, we you can imagine we have discounts applied to this company because of that risk. So uh, I, it's sort of, you know, I, I don't know where what the valuation is right now, but certainly um, investors have taken into account well, what's been happening with the FDA. $500 million on it, and then uh, we'll close the whole circle. No, no. I thought so too. You know, I asked SoftBank um, oh, while I had them in the hot seat, <laughs> and it turns out they have vice classes. No, no, I wasn't. I, I always thought it was sort of like a, a like a, it would make sense. You know, this is a fast growth company, global ambitions. Um, but no, SoftBank turns out has the same vice classes as, as everyone else, which I wouldn't have expected necessarily. 
And I wonder well, how the, much uh, those vice clauses yeah. are open to interpretation, right? Because I've heard, um, I think, in different articles, the Jewel founders position their products as actually intended Harm to be better reduction. for you. Yes, yes exactly. Yes. Uh, maybe not smoking cessation, but reduction as right. an alternative. Right. And so I'm curious if there are certain funds or investors who would actually say this isn't a vice, it's intended to be an aid of some sort and try to be able to funnel money in through that means. Sure. I, I do sort of think that they would have to do something different, though, yes. in order to make that an easier argument for the investors who probably do want to get behind Gotta the Got to go to the teen smoking right. before you can get rid of, the, rid of that vice, bleh, vice clause. I can speak English. It's one of my skills. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all a little bit tired today. Well, guys, I think we have got to let Iris go, but it was such a pleasure having you Thank here. You Thank so you so much, much for, for letting coming. me visit. Thanks, Danny, Iris. Danny, Alex, great talking with you guys as always. And guys, we'll see you again next week. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And a big thank you to Connie Loizos, our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet. And we will see you all right here next week.